Where's Jeff? Thank you, Jeff, for the invite. It's great to be here. Uh, we're locals now, so only about 10 or 15 minutes away. Uh, moved to North Yorkshire to Gargrave about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. Uh, beginning to get used to the York North Yorkshire weather. It's a bit of a shock after uh, moving from the Kent coast, where the sky is always blue and the temperature is always warm. Um, yeah, it's a lot colder up here, and, and we're realizing now that it really was a call of God, um, <laughs> because we didn't actually know, in all honesty, we didn't know why we were called up here. We just knew that we were called, and we moved in complete obedience. Um, and as we have kind of rooted into the soil of North Yorkshire, we've begun to see what the Father's doing and what his plan is. His plan is always perfect. And the thing is, you don't have to be fully in the picture to be obedient, do you? You know, our comprehension is not a prerequisite for our cooperation. You know, we don't necessarily always understand why we're moving somewhere, why we're doing something, why we're... You know, it's just that we have to do it, and then we understand. And then as we understand, we think, gosh, he's really clever. <laughs> And that's the phase that we're in. Um, my life has changed so much over the last three or four years. I've been through a massively intensive uh, season of restoration. Up until 2012, I was um, a conference speaker going all over the world who did a little bit of writing. Now that's completely shifted, and I'm now a full-time writer uh, who does a little bit of speaking. And it's only a very little bit of speaking. And I prioritize speaking to small groups locally, that's where my heart is. Not big stages internationally. That's all gone from my heart um, because I do believe that God has brought and is bringing the curtain down on, quote, celebrity Christianity. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a healthy model. I, I think basically it's, it's a founded and formed on the basis of a worldly model of celebrity and pop culture. You can see that in the way in which we put our bands, our music groups up at the front and in which we turn worship leaders into pop stars. Um, the whole model, in my view, is profoundly dysfunctional and worldly. And I do think that the Father is up to something, and he's turning our whole attention away from celebrities towards heroes, because heaven doesn't celebrate celebrities. Heaven celebrates heroes who are ordinary sons and daughters who are gripped by an extraordinary passion and a dream. And I think that's a very different mindset. And so he's not into particularly great, big, pop celebrity gatherings. I believe he's into family. Yes. And, and so I think there is a massive paradigm shift going on at the moment. And if you hear it, and if you follow it, it's going to be the most exciting days of your life. And it may be small, but God's putting the capacity of a jumbo jet into small Cessna aircraft. That's the word he gave me about five years ago, that he is putting the capacity of a jumbo jet into small Cessna aircrafts. So you may say, well, we're only small. Precisely. He's always dealt with the small. The kingdom of heaven begins as a small mustard seed. Zerubbabel and Joshua were admonished by the prophets in a spirit of encouragement and love, do not despise the day of small things. So Cherith and I, we love the small because it's family, it's relational, it's real, it's non-celebrity. And I believe it's the way forward for the church. And right across this country, 
and right across the continent of Europe, which has been so much the focus of our news recently, the father is up to something, establishing small dynamic families full of the father's love, which when they interconnect with a network of fire across the whole continent, there will be a reformation. There will be a reformation. I talk not just of renewal and revival, I talk of reformation. And a place as small as this, this morning, could have within it the seeds of reformation in the Father's love if we will just wean ourselves off the wrong paradigms and embrace the new paradigms from heaven, which I believe are much more about cluster than about great big celebrity gatherings. It says in the book of Isaiah, the new wine is in the clusters. That's one of the most profoundly prophetic words for our time. The new wine is in the clusters. The clusters are grapes. You know, we think big because we've been, I think, heavily influenced by the MTV model. We think unless it's like the MOBO Awards, big, glitzy, it's not, it's not worth pursuing. But God's into the small. He's really into the small. He's into clusters. When the grapes are in a cluster, that's where the new wine's going to come from. So this is new wine right now. There's a new wineskin being prepared. And it's got nothing to do with what we've been through before. So if you're allergic to change, you need to have your allergy seen to. (laughs) We British, we're allergic. We're pathologically allergic to every form of change in every context of our lives. Change is abhorrent. We abhor it. We don't like it. But we've got to get used to it because there is a transition upon us that is massively seismic. And it's to do with the Father's love. It's to do with embracing our calling to be sons and daughters, to be heroes, small people doing big things for God. And it's about embracing family. Families that are like Cessna aircraft with the capacity of a jumbo jet. Not great big vineyards, but small clusters of grapes. That's where it's all going to come from. Anyone like the sound of that? So we've moved in obedience to the Holy Spirit because we have been completely weaned off and delivered of the old paradigm. And we're into relationship, we're into local, we're into family. I'm into this. I'd rather do this than what I was doing before. Because the rest of the week I can just do some writing and then I come out and chat. I'm not preaching. I'm chatting to you. For me, it's more like a fireside talk. If you want to interrupt me at any point, you can. I'm not going to be offended. I don't know where we ever got that idea from, that we all just have to sit and listen like obedient little school children. (laughs) Passive learning is not the most effective form of education. Jesus taught us 2,000 years ago, you... You learn actively by doing, on the go, on the move. You don't just sit around. I wish I had it here this morning, but, and I wish I had it committed to memory, but there's a great parody of the Footprints in the Sand poster. Do you remember that? It's called Butt Prints in the Sand. And it's Jesus basically saying, you know, get off your butt. Sorry to be so rude, but, you know... <laughs> There are butt prints in the sand. It's a brilliant poem parody. I might put it up on my Facebook quite soon. So if you follow or we're connected as friends on Facebook, I'll put that up for you because it's hilarious. 
spot prints in the sand. Anyway, enough of that. So let me talk to you this morning very briefly about the loving spirit of adoption because I believe that uh, God never wanted us to be celebrities. He never wanted us to be religious. That his dream right from the word go was for us to be sons and daughters. And my ambition in life, you know, I have failed him, but I know that my daddy is kind and that he specializes in restoration. And whilst the church might write us off when we fall, and who doesn't fall and fail at some point and make mistakes... He does not write us off. The church may disqualify us, but Dad requalifies us. He is in that business. So right from the word go, he's understood that our destiny is to be taken from the orphan state, which is slavery and religion, to the state of sonship and daughterhood, which is a place of intimacy. It's the place of thrill. It's the place of adventure. Because your motivation for everything is love, not law. It's joy, not duty. It's passion. So I'm talking to you about the loving spirit adoption. I was set up for this because in 1960 I was orphaned along with my twin sister. And we were placed in an orphanage in Hackney in East London. And some Anglican nuns who were looking after and running a home for unmarried mums they were praying about what should happen with Mark and Claire. Actually, Claire was called Mandy then. Mark and Mandy, these two little beautiful babies. And one of the nuns, called Sister Mary Therese, had an idea that the father, I believe, put dropped into her soul. Connect Mark and Mandy with Philip and Joy Stibby. So she wrote to them. And they came into that little orphanage in 1961 and adopted... Claire and me into their family. A family with Jewish roots, because Stibby is a Jewish, Dutch Jewish name. So we've got rabbis in our family history going back to the 16th century. 134 members of the Stibby family were wiped out in the Holocaust. So it's adopted into an incredible family with an incredible history. My father was a close friend of C.S. Lewis was taught by C.S. Lewis, was a star pupil of C.S. Lewis, and for three years had dinner with C.S. Lewis every Tuesday night. So guess what I am today? A storyteller. You see, it's it's an amazing setup. There are setbacks and there are setups, and every setback is a setup. (laughs) What we see as a setback, the father sees as a setup. Being orphaned is a setback. (laughs) But it was a setup. Why? Because when I became a Christian in 1977, God gave me a backstory that enabled enabled me to have a unique perspective on the big story that he's a dad who all along, right from the fall in the Garden of Eden, has had a plan to adopt children into his family. It was a setback, but it was also a setup. Every setback you've had in your life, God can turn into a setup. He's setting you up for something, to see something that you could never have seen before unless you've been through that. And then when you see it, you can share it because there are people around who are in that place and you have a unique revelation from that time of desolation that will give you the capacity to lead to their transformation. This is the way it goes. It's called redemption. Say redemption. Redemption. It's a good word, isn't it? Redemption. Just feel it again. Redemption. 
Redemption set, Redemption. Brilliant. Shawshank Redemption. Sorry. Um, <laughs> greatest movie of all time. C.S. Lewis. What a legacy. What a legacy. Every time I'm writing, I think, gosh, how could I write that clearly? And then I realize my dad, he was mentored by the clearest thinker of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, who had a unique capacity to make hard things simple. And I thank the Lord because it's like that legacy through my dad has touched my life. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, the task of the true educator is to make complicated things simple. Who was the supreme example of that? Jesus. Which is why he always resorted to stories. John Wesley is one of my heroes, and he understood this. When his heart was strangely warmed and he experienced personal renewal in 1738, we all know that he said later, my heart was strangely warmed, but he also said this, I exchanged the faith of a servant for the faith of a son. And I happen to believe that the heart of revival is the revival of the heart. I'm going to say that again. The heart of revival is the revival of the heart. When the church becomes all head, cognitive, intellectual, religious running by rote and duty. God breathes out his Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, the fire of his love. Baptism in the spirit is baptism in love more than it is baptism in power. People don't understand that, especially some of my Pentecostal friends. They're beginning to embrace this transition. Yeah, it is baptism in power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But it's also baptism in love because when heaven hits you, it's always love. It is. Yeah. And you become kinder to other people than you've ever been before, especially those that religion, with all of its bigotry and hatred, turns away. Uh-huh. Suddenly you find God's heart for gay people, for Muslims, for single-parent mums, for anyone whom society marginalizes. Why? Because you've been hit by the kindness of heaven. Religion writes those people off and excludes them But Jesus always loved those people. And when we're baptized in love, which is what revival is, we exchange the faith of a religious slave for the faith of a relational son or daughter. Which would you rather have? The only thing that's got me through the last four years is the fact that he is a relentlessly, furiously kind father. Never gives up. You know, we've sung it for years, your love never fails. Never gives up. What if you actually found that to be true and then started singing it? You'd be wasted on the floor. would be snot everywhere. You know, we sing it because it's a nice pop song. Your love never fails. We have people prancing around on the stage. But what if it gripped us? What if it came from heaven with such a forceful revelation that there was snot everywhere and we were singing it through sobbing because we've known it, we've walked it, we've talked it, we've experienced it. I believe that's utterly contagious for Keithley. It's utterly contagious for North Yorkshire. I don't care what age you are, and especially if you're young, in your 20s, Generation Y, the millennials, they are waiting and they are desperate for this kind of revelation of Christianity. 
And we have got to somehow be vehicles of it. The heart of revival is the revival of the heart. Baptism in love. It's what Wesley found. Exchange the faith of a servant for the faith of a son. So went around preaching on spiritual adoption. Did you know that? All over the country, on horseback. 250,000 miles on horseback. That's a lot of miles on horseback. I'd have a very, you know, my butt prints would be in the sand, I'm telling you, (laughs) if I was that much on a horse. I'd be sitting somewhere very soft every evening. But he preached from his horse. God's a loving father. Get a grip. He distinguished between the natural, the legal, and the filial. This is technological, technical, this is theological. But let me just say, he distinguished between natural people, he distinguished between legal people and filial or relational people. He said, you know, there are some people who don't know Christ at all, they're natural or carnal. There are those who are in the church and all they have is a fear of God. They're religious slaves. That's legal. And then those who have been filled with the spirit of revival, which is the revival of the heart, baptism in love, who know that our God is the best daddy in the universe. And we've been adopted and we're no longer orphans. That was Wesley's message. That was the revival message that saved this nation from the equivalent of the French Revolution in the 18th century. A nation that was drunk on gin, heading for a guillotine in Hyde Park and the singing of the Marseillaise all over this country. The Church, Church of England, my denomination, dead. Completely believed the lie of deism, a, th- a theology of the time that basically said God has set this universe up like a clock and it's just now running down. He's not involved at all. And then God came in revival to prove them all wrong. The clock maker interfered with the clock. So there are things that need mending in this clock. And the Church of England either accepted and opened the doors to Wesley or they shut the doors in his face. But either way, it saved this country from addiction and revolution. And even secular, non-Christian, atheistic historians have to admit that. They do it through gritted teeth. What Wesley carried, we need today. It's the very heart of revival, the revival of the heart. So he talked about the loving spirit of adoption. And I wrote a book in 1999 called From Orphans to Heirs about celebrating our spiritual adoption. R.T. Kendall said something very interesting in the forward to the book. He said, the time is long overdue that the church generally should rediscover the New Testament teaching of adoption. I believe that to be profoundly true. It's the absolute heart and soul of what's lying ahead for all of us. There are five adoption passages. I'm going to take you through each one of them real quick. But I want to point out there are five passages in the New Testament where the word adoption is used in the original Greek. It's huiothasia, for those of you who like Greek. Now, the only reason I mention that is not to sound clever. The reason I mention that is because I want you to understand that 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 word in the original Greek is a combination of two words, huios, which means son, and thesia, which means standing. Huiothesia is the process by which you give somebody who is not your son the standing, the status, the position of a son. Adoption. 
And I want you to understand that this is totally biblical. That what I'm about to talk to you about is totally biblical. It's not just experience, although the experience is amazing. But I want you to understand it's, it, this is all founded on something a lot less subjective. It's more objective than that. This is in Scripture. How many times are we encouraged to be born again in the New Testament? Do you know? Once by Jesus, once by Paul. That's twice in total. John 3 and Titus 3. <coughs> Two and a half times more often we are encouraged to be adopted, to have the spirit of adoption welling up within our hearts so we cry out, Daddy, Abba, to God. Two and a half times more references and mentions of adoption than being born again. And yet, how much do we hear about being born again? And how much do we hear about being filled with the power of adoption? I would suggest to you that we hear a lot in evangelical culture about being born again, but nothing about being adopted. It's time for this neglected jewel in the necklace of the bride of Christ to be rubbed, to be shone, to be precious again to all of us. So let me just take you through these scriptures. But before I do, I'm just going to tell you that Paul was thinking as a Roman citizen here, because there's no right of adoption in Hebrew culture. So if you're a Jew in the time of Jesus, you won't find any teaching on the process of adopting a child in the book of Leviticus, anywhere in the Old Testament. Now, why is this? Let's just think about this for a moment. Why is there no teaching in the Old Testament about adoption when you read about orphans everywhere? Everywhere in the Old Testament. The word yatam in Hebrew means orphan. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. Right from the time of the giving of the Ten Commandments onwards, you'll find it in Exodus. God's precious heart for the orphan and for the widow. That's one of the most beautifully distinctive things about the character of the heart of our God is that he loves the orphan, the fatherless. He loves the widow. Psalm 68, a father to the fatherless, a defender of the cause of widows, is God in his holy house. He sets the lonely in families, and he causes the prisoners to sing songs of joy. What a great dad we have. This is his heart. He loves orphans. So why is there no teaching on adoption in the Old Testament. It is because the family unit in Judaism is so strong that if anybody loses their parents, they are immediately absorbed into the wider family unit, uncles, aunts, and so on. There was no need for any teaching on adoption in the Hebraic culture. Why? Because the family did it. That's why the Bible says he sets the lonely in families. It doesn't say he sets the lonely in orphanages. Now, that's a massively significant point right there, and I could preach on it for about an hour. He never said, I set the lonely in orphanages. His heart has always been right along to set the lonely in families. His heart for family beats with extreme passion. Now, in the Roman culture, it's totally different. If somebody was orphaned, 
then there was a process of adoption. The normal process was this, because you will understand in the Roman culture, if you were childless, that was a big deal. It's a huge stigma. So if you're a married couple, 2,000 years ago, in the time of Russell Crowe and Gladiator, (laughs) and you have a wife, but you don't have any kids, you can't have kids, that's a huge problem. Because the father, the husband, one of his big dreams in life is to perpetuate, to keep going, what was called the pater familias, the family name on the father's side. So you don't have children, you can't do that. So the normal course of operation was to take hold of a slave in your household. Because in a Roman villa, there are probably about 70 people, most of them slaves. And in amongst all of those slaves, there would be children, right? And so what the couple would do, they would approach one of these couples that are slaves who have children. And they would say, we'd like to adopt one of your boys. And the, man, the couple would always say yes. You know why? Because being a slave was a very dangerous and very unpredictable life in ancient Rome. And to be emancipated from that state was an incredible gift. It was amazing grace, basically. You either had to earn your freedom over many years, or somebody would come into your world, and even though you didn't deserve it, they would pay the redemption money. The only other way out was if somehow some great miracle happened, and a couple adopted you from the state of slavery. And the process was really weird, compared to today, because what would happen uh, was that the couple who owned the child, in the sense that they were their biological parents, would take that child to a magistrate, a praetor. And the adopting father would stand here, the biological father would stand here, and the little boy would stand in the middle, in front of the magistrate. And three times that boy would be sold with gold and silver. Three times. Gold and silver, three times, sold from here to here. And after the third time of asking, going, going, gone, the praetor, the magistrate, would say, sold. This boy is now this father's son. And all this boy's debts are cancelled. And this boy will inherit everything in this parent's estate. You see how it's an emancipation? You talk about freedom. This guy has a new father. This little boy has a new future. This little boy has a new freedom. And this little boy has a new fortune coming to him, and he didn't deserve any of it. Paul saw this time and time again. It's very unlike our procedures of adoption, isn't it, in the Western world today? When my father and mother adopted me in 1961, the storyline was completely different. If you ever watch Call the Midwife on a Sunday night, that's my story. (laughs) Nuns, unmarried mums, little children. That's my story. That's my twin sister's story. I can only, Cherith will tell you, I can only ever watch Call the Midwife once in a blue moon. Because I know if I watch it, I'm I'm setting myself up for tears. I can't get through with that. See, I, whenever I look at Jenny Agatha, she is my hero. Sister, you talk about heroes, not celebrities. You've never heard of Sister Mary Therese, Mary Therese right? 
a nun, Anglican nun in 1960, who linked up Claire and Mark with Philip and Joyce Dibby. That's why they came into the orphanage and took us away. She's a hero in heaven. But you've never heard of her. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things that the world will never hear. But heaven applauds. It's a very different process in the Western world, but in today, but in the Western world in Paul's time, the Roman world, three times the child would be sold. And it was called the transaction, the municipatio in Latin. And then there would be a declaration by the magistrate, which was called vindicatio, vindication. It's fascinating, isn't it? Sure. Do you find it interesting? Yeah, I check your pulse if you don't. It, 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 Paul took hold of this. He just saw something. You know, I, I love people. I absolutely adore Christians who go around seeing things. And they say, oh, that's like this. That's like that. This is what Jesus did. The kingdom of heaven is like. If you haven't got that capacity, then perhaps you ask the Holy Spirit to, to address that part of the brain that connects A with B. He can do it, you know. He can kiss that part of your brain into life. So the first passage, Romans 9, 4, theirs, whose? No. (laughs) This is the crazy thing about it. See, this is the first adoption passage. (laughs) This is the first adoption passage. We all think that we're the only ones that have been adopted in Christ. But actually, Dad was in the adoption process before he adopted us because when Adam and Eve were tempted by the great ultimate orphan, Satan, into becoming orphans themselves, Dad already had in mind a plan. A plan of adoption. And he started with national adoption because he knew that it was going to be through this nation, Israel, that all the nations of the earth would be invited into the family of God. So he starts off with a nation. I wouldn't have chosen the Israelites, frankly. Scrawny bunch of nomads in the desert. No good for anything except telling stories. But maybe that's the point. No good for anything except telling stories. What's the best way of communicating truth? Story. I would have chosen the Greeks with their wisdom or the Egyptians with their pyramids or the Romans with their army, but Dad in heaven chooses insignificant people to do significant things through. It's always been his style. So he he chooses this scrawny bunch of nomads, nobodies, no, they're mads. You know, it's like... (laughs) And he says, all right, I'm going to do it through them. So he adopts the nation of Israel first. So I'm going to to do everything through this nation. It's not like I've ruled out all the other nations of the earth, because he said to Abraham, through one nation, I'm going to bless every nation. So his heart was always to choose one vessel through which to bless the world with the Father's love, which is the ultimate blessing. And so Paul says, you know, I'd do anything for my fellow Israelites. Because Paul was a Jew, right? He was a Roman citizen, but he's also a Jew. And his heart is bleeding for the Jewish people. He says, I'll do anything for them. Why? Because theirs is the adoption of sons. 
Theirs is the divine glory, the Shekinah glory that came into the temple when Solomon dedicated the temple, 2 Chronicles 6. When the prayer of Solomon went up, the fire of God's glory came down. Priests were overwhelmed. All they could do was sing, you are good. Flummoxed by the fire of God. I'd like to see that more often, wouldn't you? Theirs is the Shekinah glory, the covenants. God is not just a dad. He's also a bridegroom. He's been making marriage covenants with his people. The receiving of the law, the Torah, the temple worship, and the promises. So the first adoption that takes place is a national adoption. Hosea chapter 11, out of Egypt I have led my son, referring to Israel, but they would have none of it. So this is the point. Here, look, look at me. So Israel's like the boy, remember? Remember the Roman adoption scenario? Here's the boy. So Israel's been taken out of slavery, was a slave. Where? Under Pharaoh, Egypt, right? You've seen Prince of Egypt. You've seen the Spielberg cartoon. You've read the book. Called the book of Exodus. So here's a, the little boy that is Israel is taken out of slavery by adoption and given a status that Israel doesn't deserve. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7. I set my affections on you, not because you were the largest nation on the earth, but just simply because my heart went out to you. Oh my gosh. It's all about the heart. But what did Israel? Israel did. Israel went back into slavery through disobedience. So well, I don't want to live in sonship. I want to go back to Egypt. How many people kept saying, I want to go back to Egypt? It's nonsense. It's completely irrational, utterly perverse. But then aren't we sometimes? How on earth he puts up with us, I don't know. <laughs> so the only solution, because his idea was that Israel would live out sonship and embody that to the rest of the planet. Well, Israel failed and went back into the orphan state of slavery. So what does God do? God sends his son. Why? Because his dream from the beginning is expressed in Ephesians 1. Sorry, wrong passage. I will deal with Galatians 4. God sends his son. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. Redeem means rescue from the state of slavery that we might receive, hey ho, the wind and the rain. What is it? Adoption. Huiothasia. The status, the undeserved position of being a son or a daughter of the king of heaven. So now we're moving from national adoption to individual adoption. Now why does God send Jesus? Because Jesus is going to fulfill everything that Israel failed to fulfill. This is the point. Jesus is the perfect son who doesn't mess up. Jesus, from the womb to the tomb, never had a sinful thought. So he was always faithful to his father. John 5, 19, I only ever say what I hear my father saying. I only ever do what I see my dad doing. Complete communion with the father in the human flesh. A model for us as people in the human flesh. We too can be like the natural son. As adopted sons and daughters, we can be conformed to the image 
of God's Son. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is really sonship. It's the process of becoming more and more like the Son. And he's given us a very hopeful picture. Because he was a human being with flesh just like ours. He didn't have some superhuman form of sinless flesh. He embraced our flesh. And yet with the help of the Holy Spirit, stayed in touch with his daddy from the womb to the tomb, did everything that his daddy wanted, including dying on the cross, has given us a picture of what we can become. And he's given Israel an eternal picture in history of what Israel was meant to become and can still become if the veil is taken from the mind of the Jewish people, which I believe one day it will be. And I think it's happening historically in our own generation. Been more Jews come to know Jesus as Messiah in the last 20 years than the last 2,000. The statistics are quite extraordinary, both in the land of Israel and worldwide, of the numbers of Jewish people who are coming to see that Jesus is the Messiah. So God sends his son. Jesus said, I'll do it. I'll show everyone what a son can do. I'll show everyone what a son can be. I'll show everyone what a son can look like. My greatest ambition for the rest of my life is to be a good son. Nothing else. Just want to be a good son. That's what a hero is. A good daughter. A good son. If you put your heart to that, There is no end to what he can achieve through you. No end. Sky's the limit. He chose us. You see, he's always planned to do this. It's not like this is something he thought up at, I don't know, 36 AD, BC rather. He thought, oh, I've got an idea. No. Right before the foundation of the world, he predestined us to be adopted. But what about everyone else? That's the question that people ask. Well, remember Israel. Israel, one nation through whom to bless every nation. We are a small family, but we have a huge destiny. Through the adopted ones, get this please, God has predestined us for adoption. Does that mean he's predestined everyone else for damnation? No, it doesn't. It means that he's predestined you and me to be the vessels of his love to every other orphan on the planet. So we are the inviters. That's our purpose. What kind of a dad would condemn 90% of the planet to the fires of hell? I'm sorry. That's not my God. God wants us to take his love to the orphans. Spiritual orphans and natural orphans. And to bring them away from that place of eternal separation into his embrace. It's our destiny. That's not heresy, that's truth. It's just that religion loves the hellfire. Ever since the Middle Ages, it's loved hellfire. Because hellfire, when you preach it, can manipulate people. And it manipulates people through fear. You start talking about the culture of heaven and the Father's love, you're no longer manipulating people through fear. You are motivating people with love. This is the paradigm shift. We either get it or we don't. 
I hope you all get it. Some of you already got it, but you need to get it more. I need to get it more. You know why? Because it's not enough just to revel in daddy's love. You've got to be like a son so that you don't mess up all the time. Gosh. Because hurting people end up hurting people. So dad, deal with my hurts so that I can be a healed people that ends up helping people. Healed person ending up healed, you know. It's early. In accordance with his pleasure... Please say the word pleasure. Now, those of you didn't say the word earlier because you're feeling all rebellious and orphan about it because you didn't like me or you didn't think it was the right thing to do, just get over yourself now and say the word pleasure. pleasure. That was better. Don't you think it's a lovely word? You know, my adoptive father, Philip Stubby, listen to this. My adoptive father, Philip Stubby, wrote to me frequently. I was sent away to boarding school on my eighth birthday. For ten years, I lived effectively away from home. That was a big deal. But one of the things that kept me going through 10 years of exile was my adoptive father used to write to me every week. And at the end of it, he would always remind me. He would say, adopting you was the best decision I ever made in my life. When he adopted me, he didn't do it through gritted teeth. He did it with a smile as big as the universe. When he took me in his arms, Anne Claire, my twin sister, in that Hackney orphanage, he was mega happy. And he always reminded me it was the best decision he ever made to adopt us. Say the word pleasure. pleasure. That's what Paul means. And here's the point. You did not... This was John Wesley's favorite text. Did you know that? I've read the sermons of Wesley. When up and down this country on horseback... His number one favorite passage was Romans 8.15. I found at least 15 sermons of Wesley's on Romans 8.15. He used to preach this time and time again. He used to say to the crowds, right up and down this country, you know, religion leads you into slavery and fear, but I'm here to tell you about Jesus. I'm here to tell you good news about Jesus. You don't have to be a religious slave. All you have to do is put your trust in the finished work of the cross, in the blood of Christ, and then guess what? You can become a son or a daughter. Your heart can be strangely warm like mine. You no longer need to be bound by a spirit of fear, but you can cry out, Daddy, to the living God. That was his message, Romans 8.15. That's why you need the spirit of adoption. See, the heart of revival is the revival of the heart. We've settled in Britain for 200 plus years for a head-only Christianity. But that's not what Jesus wants for us. He's looking for a love affair with his bride. Service is no substitute for affection. And guess what? The news just gets better. I don't mean the news on TV. <laughs> that doesn't get better. It just gets worse at the moment. But here's the good news. It just gets better. You know that gospel means good news. Yes. Gospel is like a declaration in the ancient world 
of Jesus and the apostles. It's like a declaration. It's like you've got cancer and somebody says all clear. It's a declaration. In the ancient world, it was used in the Roman Empire. If a Roman army went out to defeat those who are enemies of the Roman Empire, people would run through the streets of Rome shouting gospel. And that meant freedom, good news. Good news. This is gospel. It just gets better and better. So Paul says, oh, by the way, adoption isn't just something that happened to you in the past. You have been adopted. It's not just something that's happening in the present. You're enjoying the spirit of adoption, getting more and more close to daddy. It's something that's going to happen in the future as well because, why? We ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons. The redemption of our bodies, what's that? The resurrection from the dead. See, this body's going to wear out one day. It's in the process of wearing out, and so is yours. Did you know that? (laughs) We are all of us, I'm afraid, subject to the laws of this fallen universe, and so our muscles will entropy. Our flesh will decay and decompose. Sorry, that's not good news. The good news is that on the last day, there is going to be a sound that is so loud, it will literally wake the dead. There will be a shofar blast from heaven. This haunting, piercing sound that says the king is coming. Those who are alive in Christ will look up and see Jesus. Those who are dead in Christ, the Church of England, the dead in Christ (laughs) will also see him. And together we will rise up and meet with him in the air. And new heaven will come to earth. Jesus and the whole company of heaven, they're coming to earth. The, 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 The momentum is from heaven to earth. It always has been, right from the word go. We, we mistakenly think of dying as going up to heaven. It's not. Heaven is coming here. So all this, us, the existing earth, the existing heavens, when Christ returns, it will be utterly transformed, continuous with the old. So we'll all recognize each other. We'll recognize this planet but it will have a whole new transfigured glory to it. He's going to beautify everything that is ugly. Heal everything that is sick. Redeem everything that is bound. And we will rise up with new resurrection bodies, glorious bodies, incorruptible bodies, bodies that will never need a dentist again. Never need a blood test again. Hooray. Never need a hospital again. Yeah. Doctors will be out of business and undertakers, I'm sorry. Yeah. We are already adopted as sons, but this is the future dimension of the full inheritance of sonship. So, at the moment, we relate to the Father through the spirit of adoption. 
But when heaven comes to earth, we will see him face to face. So we will have face to face intimacy with the Father who will wipe away every tear from our eyes, Revelation 21. So I, I understand the future dimension of adoption as being resurrected at the general resurrection when Christ comes back, having new glorious resurrection incorruptible bodies and being fitted and kitted for heaven's glory on earth and intimacy that's face-to-face. I call it the ultimacy of intimacy. It's the ultimate intimacy. There is no intimacy on earth like it. Even the greatest intimacy between a man or a woman, between a son or a daughter and a father, it cannot compare, although it will be recognizable, it cannot compare to this face-to-face. That's the fullness of adoption. So we have been adopted. We are being adopted. We will be adopted. It's like salvation is a continuous process, past, present, future. The Anglicans have always understood this, by the way, because in their catechism they talk about a lifeboat scenario where you're lost at sea. A lifeboat comes out, pulls you onto the lifeboat. You are effectively rescued. You have been rescued. Now you're in the boat heading towards land. You are being rescued. But when you're on terra firma, you will be rescued. Salvation is like that. It's past, present, future. It's not just past. So it's, it's important, this, because too many Christians, they settle for the sinner's prayer, and that's it. It's like, I've said the prayer, and I'm now going to heaven. It's my eternal fire insurance. And they do nothing the rest of their lives. I believe people are in a place called paradise right now in their spirits, not with their bodies, not with their full resurrection bodies. That's coming on the last day. When I die, I believe my spirit will go to paradise, which is where Jesus is. And it means in ancient Persian, beautiful garden. That's what paradise means. So that's where my my spirit's going. But when Jesus comes back on the last day, wherever my body is, wherever the particles, the motes of dust that were Mark Stibby's body, will be miraculously collated, fused into a new resurrection body. And I will be with Jesus. And then we will be on the earth, and the meek shall inherit the earth, and we will be fulfilling at last our destiny, which is not just to relate to him, but to rule and bring the heaven the culture and the kingdom of heaven to the whole of the earth. This kind of thing C.S. Lewis saw in the Narnia stories, but that's another story. Talking animals. The lion shall lie down with the lamb. Vegetarian lions. (laughs) And as it says on Ghostbusters, the first movie, the cat will lie down with the dog. That will also be a miracle. See, this is such fantastic news. Jim Packer understood it, the great evangelical theologian, but so few have understood it. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God is greater. So James Packer, he said, you know, justification by faith, which was the great theme of the first Reformation in the 16th century. It's a legal picture. God is a judge. We're all lawbreakers. But thank God for Jesus, whose blood pays the price. He dies in our place, takes the punishment that was rightfully ours. 
That's a legal picture. It's a courtroom yep. drama. You get me? But there was also, all the time in the New Testament, another truth which the First Reformation completely ignored, which is that God is our Father, not just our judge. And we are orphans, not just lawbreakers. And Jesus is our natural Son, who has come into this earth, our older brother, God's natural Son, who's come into this earth to look for orphans like you and me. And through his death on the cross, he's paid the price. So we are bought, not with gold and silver, as in Roman adoption, but through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And we now have a new daddy. We have a new family. We have a new future. We have a new fortune. It's called the unsearchable riches of God's grace. It's amazing. Favor, if you will. Undeserved. We have new freedom if we want to live in it and walk in it. It's been paid for. I believe in Bill Johnson's statement, I want to get everything that Jesus paid for, don't you? I do. Freedom. See, adoption is the most glorious truth. And all our previous debts have been cancelled. Again, if you're not excited by this, do please check your pulse to see if you're still alive. It's kind of, who wouldn't be excited by that. But the point that James Packer's making is this, that justification is the foundational blessing of the gospel. This is his exact words. But adoption is the highest blessing of the gospel. So it's not enough to know what you've been saved from, sin. You've got to know what you've been saved to, which is sonship. It's so important. And the church has been living with half the gospel since the first reformation. But I'm telling you, I'm going to end where I began. There are the seeds of another reformation in the soil of Keithley this morning. A reformation in the Father's love. Yes, sir. So is that why uh, a righteous man can bring his family in because they're part of that adoption? Yeah. By his adoption, they are also... There's great mystery here. Mysteries which I don't think... We understand because we live in a very individualistic culture, right? But it says in 1 Corinthians 7, for example, that a believing wife, that her salvation can affect in some way, influence in some way an unbelieving husband. It's a very, very great mystery. That in. <laughs> right, you're a living embodiment of this principle. So the th- this, this is very, very key then. That God does not embrace the Western cultural notion of individualism, where everyone is an entirely separate island. He believes in our interconnectedness, which is why Adam's sin affects us all, because he believes in solidarity. And this is something mysterious, mystical even, and I have no idea what it means. He asked me to define it, to explain it. You know, we enter into a whole realm where nobody seems to dare to want to tread. But I do believe, yes, if we get radically infected by the virus of the Father's love, it affects everyone around us. It affects our marriages, it affects our children, it affects our workplace, it affects our church, it affects everything. 
The degree of that infection is up to God and human choice, but there is an infection. It's worth being contagious with this thing. That's what God wanted for Israel. Be contagious. 